So how many times in the last year have you started a conversation with someone about something related to the pandemic, something about a given government restriction or about whether masks are useful or not, or maybe more recently about the vaccine? And shortly into the conversation, you realize that the person that you are talking to thinks dramatically and drastically differently than you do on the given topic. Uh, I bet if you're like me that this has happened to you a lot of times over the last year where you start a conversation and you realize that your opinions are different on the matter. Uh, Maybe if you're honest with yourself, you've even had the reaction at some point when you discovered that about this opinion that the other person held where you thought, oh, really? Like they think that? It's so different than what I think and they think that way? How could they think that way? about this, which seems so clear to me that we should think this way. Why are they thinking about it that way? It's been very interesting in the last year to watch public discourse and to see the polarization that's happened in the world. Now, I think we do need to be careful to not say it's worse than it's ever been in the history of the world, because the world's been a pretty messed up place for a long time. And there's been polarization that's been really dramatic at other times in history as well. But the, the conversation in the last year has been maybe different, uh, different topics than it has been in the past, but it's been polarized nonetheless. It's been troubling to me, actually, to watch. And so recently, I've been doing some reading about how it is that we form our opinions and why do we hold our opinions so strongly and how can I engage in conversations with people who might think differently than I do on a given topic and have a productive conversation how do I see my own blind spots so that I, see, I, can, I can tell where I'm not seeing things correctly? How can I have the humility to see where I've been wrong and actually embrace where I've been wrong so that I can learn uh, towards what is right? It's been some interesting things that I'm discovering, and I'm reading about these things especially because I've got a, a real passion on my heart and a burden on my heart these days that as the church regathers, as we come together again in person, that we don't allow ourselves to be divided over these things. Certainly, we can discuss different topics that are relevant to today, but we need to be very careful that we don't let secondary issues become primary and divide us and distract us from what it is that God really wants us to be about. Because we have a lot in common as the church. We have the unity of Christ, the unity of the salvation that's been given to us, and a common mission that God has given to us. And so this is what we want to focus ourselves on and not be divided about some of the other things. As we study the book of Daniel and we move into chapter 9 today, we're we're going to study something that's a little different than anything we've seen so far in the book of Daniel. Daniel is going to pray an extended prayer of confession. And the purpose of this confession is so that the people, the, the Jewish people, the people of God would be united around God's mission and that God's name would be glorified. And so it's this attitude of humility and repentance that Daniel demonstrates for us that that helps us to see our main point today, which is this. Confessing our sin focuses our hearts on God's mission. Confessing our sin focuses our hearts on God's mission. So what I want to do today is I want to study Daniel's prayer a little bit. And then I want to suggest a a theological uh, truth that emerges from this prayer and then make two specific applications Uh, based off of that theological foundation. So let's start in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. This is how the chapter starts. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, 
who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from scriptures, from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So a couple points here. First, the, the first year of Darius the Mede, who some believe was Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, represents a turning point in the exile. Okay, you'll remember from our study of Daniel that Daniel, as a young teenager, was taken off into Babylon. He was one of the first to be taken into exile in Babylon. This, this exile was a result of the people's disobedience to God. God was punishing them, he was disciplining them, and he sent them off into Babylon. And over the next 20 years, more and more people were taken into exile into Babylon. Now, when Darius comes to power, this means that the mighty Babylonian kingdom, which seemed so strong and powerful when they took over uh, in Jerusalem, had now fallen, and a new power had, had come to the throne. And so there's a turning point here, and combined with this turning point in, in the, the history of these kingdoms, there's also the recognition from Daniel that the exile is about to end. He's reading Jeremiah, and he reads that it's supposed to last about 70 years. And he sees these 70 years are almost over. Now, Jeremiah had, had written to the exiles. He, he was a prophet around, around the time where they went into exile. So what Jeremiah writes was about 50 years prior to when Daniel's reading it here, maybe a little bit more. And he's looking at Jeremiah 25, and he's looking at Jeremiah 29, which, which is where Jeremiah talks about these 70 years. And interestingly, Jeremiah 29 contains one of the most uh, quoted scriptures uh, from the Old Testament, but often it's used completely divorced from the context in which the verse is given. So how many times have you heard someone quote this verse or quoted it yourself? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now we often take that passage and apply it to our own lives, which isn't entirely inappropriate, but when we don't see the context in which this verse is given, we can abuse the verse pretty easily. So this is the context of the verse. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing to exiles. They're already in Babylon. And in the first part of the chapter, he says to them, hey, I want you to, to be a part of the society that you're now in. So build houses and plant gardens and have children and pray for the prosperity of the city in which you're living, because if it prospers, you will prosper. And then in chapter 10, Jeremiah writes, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place uh, from which I carried you into exile. So in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is saying, hey, 70 years, this exile is going to last, and then you're going to be re released to return back to home. Now, you would think that reading that and understanding that, Daniel would be full of joy, full of optimism, full of hope. But instead, read this. In verse 3, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. He humbles himself in kind of a mournful posture before the Lord. And he's very concerned instead of very excited. And we're going to see as he prays through this prayer of confession that he's concerned that the people haven't learned the lesson yet. 
that they haven't turned from their wicked ways yet. And so he takes it upon himself to pray this prayer. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He starts with praise. We've talked about that. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you've scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it, was written, just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Confessing our sin focuses our heart on God's mission. Daniel here prays this prayer of corporate confession. What is it that he confesses of? Well, a lot of different things. He confesses, if you look at the verbs of sinning, of doing wrong, of acting wickedly, rebelling, turning away, not listening, acting unfaithfully, not keeping the law, transgressing, not seeking the Lord's favor, and not turning from sin. And Daniel is very concerned as these 70 years come to an end that the people have not humbled themselves before God yet. They have not turned to him. They have not learned the lesson. That God has for them. And so he confesses the sin. And he confesses the sin with the goal of God's glory and God's mission. That God's name would be made great. That God's reputation would be well known throughout the earth. That his city would be restored. This confession is a model for us. 
of many different things uh, when it comes to prayer. I love what Herman Veldkamp says uh, about this prayer. He says, What distinguishes us, Christ followers, the church, from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we've learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. He says, Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. And so Daniel models for us something very important. But let me ask a question as we lay the theological foundation for the two application points we want to make today. What responsibility did Daniel bear for the sins he confesses? In other words, how responsible was Daniel himself for the sins that he confesses in Daniel chapter 9? If we step back even further, we could say, Where is the line between a corporate responsibility for sin and an individual responsibility for sin? Because if we look at Daniel, and as we've studied him now for eight weeks, we've seen him as a a, a really noble person, right? Kind of a a guy who's beyond reproach. Like in chapter six, the, the, the people wanted to discredit Daniel and were looking for something that they could hang on him in order to discredit him. They couldn't find anything. So I think we can say with a a, a reasonable and high level of confidence that Daniel is not guilty of very much of what he confesses here. And in fact, he's confessing the sins of Israel that led them into exile, which means that he's confessing sins that were not just 70 years old, but actually generations in the past. And he's taking it upon himself to confess the sins of his people. Now also note He doesn't have an official responsibility to do so. He's not a prophet, even though he takes on prophetic roles at times. He's not from a priestly family. He has no official title or designation within the Jewish people. Remember, he was an official in a secular government. And yet on behalf of his people, he prays corporately and says, Lord, forgive us for these wrongdoings. So the question then is, is it right for us to also bear responsibility for sins that we ourselves have not committed, but our people have committed? Is it a corporate responsibility to confess sin, or is it an individual responsibility to confess sin? Now, often uh, in, in kinds of theological questions like this, we like to camp on one side or the other, where often the Bible presents both of these things next to each other and says they're both operating at the same time. And that's what we find when it comes to a corporate responsibility for sin and an individual responsibility for sin. So let's look at some scriptural examples of where a group of people were held responsibility for the sin of a few people or one person. In Joshua chapter 8, there's a character by the name of Achan. The Israelites had just defeated Jericho and God's instructions to the Israelites were, don't touch anything that you find. Leave it all. It's all to be devoted to God. Well, Achan saw something that he really liked. He took it. He buried it in his tent. So the Israelites go out and they try to fight the next battle, which is just a small town. They should have been able to handle it, no problem. And yet they lose the battle quite decisively. People die on the battlefield. And Joshua, their leader, goes to God and says, God, why did we lose this battle? And he says, well, somebody has sinned. And the whole nation is paying the consequence for this one man's sin. So they find out that it's Achan who has sinned. Who who is held responsible for that sin? Well, the punishment is upon Achan and his whole family. His family didn't steal anything, and yet they suffer the consequences of 
his sin. So Tim Keller, as he writes about these things, and he writes so quite brilliantly about, about these matters, he says, Achan's family didn't do the stealing, but they helped him become the kind of man who would. And so they are somehow held responsibility for that sin. But even more broadly, the nation is held responsibility for that sin. There were men who died in battle because of somebody else's sin. They were all held responsible for this. 2 Samuel chapter 21 is another example. Uh, Israel is is, uh, experiencing a famine for three years. And David goes to the Lord, King David, and says, why are we experiencing this famine? And he says, well, it's because of the actions of King Saul, who was already dead when it came to the Gibeonite people. Back in Joshua's day, the Gibeonites tricked the Israelites into making a treaty with them. And so uh, Israel was always, uh, was, was never going to conquer the Gibeonites because of this treaty. But Saul had tried to do so. He had put a number of them to death. And so God is now saying, the Israelites, you guys are suffering famine because of the actions of Saul, and he's already dead. And so there's repentance that's required. It's not even just of God's people that this is true. In 1 Samuel 15, God punishes the current generation of Amalekites for sins done by their ancestors. Or in Deuteronomy 23, the Moabites and the Ammonites are held responsible for the actions of a few people in the past. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's talking about who's responsible for crucifying Jesus. And he's talking to all the people in Jerusalem and he paints them all with the same brush of responsibility even though some of them would have been much more involved than others. So there's this element of corporate responsibility for sin that we can see in the Scripture. That we all bear the guilt, sometimes, of the sin of certain individuals. And when you think about it, if we deny that, if we deny that truth, that sometimes that, uh, one person can stand and confess the sin of a whole group, We're actually denying the the foundation of what Jesus came to do. Right? Jesus does this and, and Keller writes about this as well. He says, corporate responsibility is at the very heart of the Bible and the gospel. We can only be saved because Jesus was punished for our sins, sins he did not commit. Now, how can this be? How is this possible? It's because through our faith and through the Spirit of God, a union is created between us and Jesus. Jesus stood in our place, confessing our sins. And there are times in which it is right for us to do the same. Now, there are limits to this, though. There is very much an individual responsibility. And this is where our modern Western individualistic culture lives quite firmly. Right? We, we react against the corporate responsibility for sin pretty easily. Say, no, no, if somebody sinned, that's their thing, not my thing. We very much highlight the individual responsibility, and the Bible highlights this as well. Ezekiel 18 makes it clear that one person is responsible for their own sin. In verse 20, the child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. In Deuteronomy 24, it's clear that Israel's judges are not to legally punish anyone for the sins of their parents or for their children. Even though in other places it does talk about how God will carry that punishment down through the generations because often that sin is passed down and demonstrated from generation to generation. But ultimately, the individual bears responsibility for what they do. Keller says, God does not make final judgment on anyone for their parents' sin or for their nation's sin, only for their own. So we are products of our community 
but we can rise up against the patterns of sin that emerge in our community. Aiken's family may have helped to shape him be the kind of person who could have stolen, but he could have resisted that. He didn't have to do it. And ultimately, he paid the price for his sin. So is there a corporate responsibility to repent of sin or is there individual responsibility to repent for sin? The answer is yes. There is both. We can't deny either of them. Keller says secular worldviews tend to be reductionistic. In other words, they tend to choose one side or the other. But to deny or to largely deny either of these is to adopt a secular view of justice and not a biblical one. When we look biblically, we see both of these things come true. So if that's the foundation, that there's both corporate and individual responsibility to repent of sin, two applications then that will help us today with current events. And the first one has to do with First Nations and the residential schools and racism against Indigenous people. We've seen this issue come up again with the discovery of of the unmarked grave in Kamloops. Uh, Graves, plural, I should say. Now, clearly, this is a very nuanced topic, and there's lots of complexity to it. But it's too simple for us to say, well, it's just the government's problem. They broke treaties. They did all kinds of things. They should pursue restoration and repentance. And yes, they should. Or to say the Roman Catholics, they were the ones that, that, that perpetrated or ran these schools and, and they should repent and they should make amends. And yes, that's true. And over the last couple of decades for both the government and the Roman Catholic Church, there have been steps towards that, even though there's more work to be done. But to separate ourselves and wash our hands of it, I think neglects our responsibility to repent corporately for sins that were done, even though they were done in the past. It didn't matter to Daniel that these sins were 70 years prior or generations prior. The goal for for Daniel in his prayer was that God's glory would be made known, that God's reputation would be a positive one in the world. And right now, the reputation of the church as a whole is not a good one. And therefore, God's reputation is not a good one when it comes to these residential schools. So if we can pursue God's agenda of reconciliation and justice, and doing so means taking an attitude of humility and repentance, why would we not take that upon ourselves? Because we could go even further and talk about the Mennonites' involvement in these residential schools. And if you do research into the Mennonites' involvement in in several of the residential schools, three of them at least in Ontario, and several more across the country, It's pretty sobering what you read about our people, our ancestors, to read the kinds of things that they did, the kinds of things that they said. Now, not all Mennonite influence was bad. There's stories of people like Henry and Elna Neufeld who were teachers in a residential school. And whenever the inspector, the government inspector, came around to make sure they were teaching English and not the First Nations language, uh, they would teach English. But as soon as the inspector left, they would teach the, the, in the First Nations language and they would try to learn it themselves because they could see the damage that was being done by trying to forcibly uh, make these children speak English. So there's good examples, absolutely. But there's also uh, thoughts such as this one of a Mennonite leader in 1963 who said, we feel that saving the Indian out of his squalor, ignorance, and filth is step one in bringing him to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That kind of attitude pervaded these residential schools and the Mennonite and and church attitude towards them. 
Menno Weeb, who has worked with Aboriginal communities uh, under MCC for 37 years, said, sadly, the Indian residential schools were instituted as part and parcel of the church's mission, a historic reality from which no church can now disassociate itself. So amid all the complexity and all of the nuance of the conversation and the other things that we could talk about, at the very base of it, right now, our reaction ought to be one of humility and repentance before the Lord and asking that reconciliation could be made possible. What the next steps are, I don't know. But right now, our posture is to sit in the grief of a community that has been wronged and to experience that with them. Even though none of us, likely none of us, were actually at any of the residential schools or running any of the residential schools, we still bear that ourselves. So we repent before the Lord for that. Secondly, second application of this corporate and individual repentance is this. Did you know that our church already has a corporate repentance prayer that's been written? (laughs) We've got one. About five years ago, uh, there was uh, leaders in our church who understood that we were facing a, a lack of spiritual freedom, that there seemed to be a block between what, what we wanted to see happen and what was actually happening. And so a group of leaders got together and said, uh, can, can we look back at our history and see the patterns and the trends that have emerged over the decades to see the ways in which we have sinned corporately? And can we put this down on paper and commit ourselves to living in a different way? And so what came out of that was a prayer action plan. And this action plan has six lines to it. And, and on the, the left-hand column is, is the column of the sinful actions that we want to renounce. In the middle is, is what we announce in terms of scriptural truth and the scriptures themselves that we affirm. And then on the right-hand side is the, the action step. We commit to acting in this way. And I want to bring that to our attention again today as we think about what it means to regather as a church. Because there are so many different issues that have emerged over the last years that Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians disagree on. Right? Have you ever been a part of a group or seen a group of Christians discuss the vaccine? Like you know how quickly emotions get, get raised and how, how quickly people can get entrenched in positions and, and accuse other people of abandoning the faith. and like It gets intense really fast. And there have been questions that I have received uh, about how we're going to handle this. Like, are we going to require people to be vaccinated before they can come to church? Are we going to have vaccinated people sit different, in a different spot than unvaccinated people? Or are vaccinated people going to be uh, uncomfortable sitting next to me as an unvaccinated person? These are questions that are being asked. Good questions that are being asked. And you can see how quickly this kind of a thing could drive a wedge between people in our church. And it could distract us totally from the unity that we experience in Christ and the mission that God has called us to. And so, my own reaction to those questions is, no, it doesn't matter to me who's vaccinated and who's not vaccinated. I've talked to people who are vaccinated and talked to people who are not vaccinated. Everybody has a decision to make about whether they're going to get a vaccine or not. And the people that I've talked to have uh, well-reasoned, thought-out process for thinking what it is that they think. And so, I don't really care. 
when it comes to who comes, who's been vaccinated, and who's not. And I've made it my personal um, uh, opinion or my personal practice that when I'm talking to someone, especially in church, uh, in, a, in a casual conversation, I am never going to ask someone if they've been vaccinated or not, because it doesn't matter to me. And it's something that could easily become something that distracts us from what we want to truly focus on, which is what God is calling us to. Okay, vaccines are just one issue that we could uh, debate, that could divide us as a church. And so, I want to bring the themes of our prayer action plan back to the forefront because they remind us of the kinds of attitudes that we want to have towards one another as we regather together as a church. And so... We said, uh, and by the way, this will be in the, in the chat, the link to the prayer action plan will be there, or the link will be under the video on YouTube. It's on our website, and I'm going to encourage you to utilize it this week. So first we said, we repent of quenching the, the Holy Spirit in our church over the last 75, 74 years now of our church's history. And so we commit to acting by welcoming and obeying the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. We don't want to get in the Spirit's way. We repent of slandering our identity in Christ. And instead, we commit to speaking life-giving words to one another. We repent of dissension and division that has been true in our church at various points. And instead, we commit to two things. We commit to refusing divisive conversations. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't talk about controversial things. I'm happy to talk about the vaccine with you or the relationship between church and state or, or anything else. We can talk about these things, but we refuse to be divided by these things. And we also listen with humility to understand. We repent of pride and fear that has characterized us. And instead we commit ourselves to clothing ourselves in humility towards one another. And then finally, we repent of taking offense at one another. And we commit to giving up the right to take offense. If Jesus could give up his right to take offense at my sin, surely I can give up the right to take offense at something uh, so, so minor as one of these disagreements that we might have with one another. These are the attitudes and the actions that must characterize us. And so I'm inviting you to corporately repent of these sins that have been true in the 74 years of our church's history. You might have just arrived at Ross Road Community Church. It doesn't matter. I'm inviting you to pray this corporate prayer of repentance along with us in this next week. So here's what I'm going to ask you specifically to do. There's six lines in this prayer action plan. I'm going to invite you this week to pray one of these lines every day until you've got through the whole thing. And really lean into that prayer, repenting of past actions that you can see in our church's history or in your own story, and committing yourself to living out these actions. I want to just focus uh, for just a moment on the word humility, which we've mentioned several times in this prayer action plan. Humility is going to be so crucial to all of it. You know, as I've been reading about how we form our opinions and, and how strongly we hold to, to what it is that we think about what's going on in the world, uh, what derails conversation is a lack of humility. And humility starts by saying, I might be wrong. <laughs> in fact, one of the books I've read talks about the joy of being wrong because 
uh, some people, successful people, uh, they, they actually take some joy in being wrong because it means that they're learning about what is actually right. It means when we form opinions about what's going on in our world, we recognize that, that there are forces shaping our opinions that we're not always even aware of within ourselves. We have cognitive bias, meaning we have a, an idea of what we think should be true, and so we value information that agrees with what we already think, and we undervalue information that disagrees with what we think. We also have working within us desirability bias. We value information that we want to be true over information that we don't want to be true. So part of humility is stepping back and saying, I have bias that I'm bringing into this conversation. One of the other interesting dynamics I've been reading about is that when you and I have a conversation and I begin by defending my position, I am automatically putting you in a defensive position. And you're going to simply respond by defending what you believe. Rather than entering into a spirit of collaboration and, and, and asking questions of one another so that we can learn what the other person thinks. I might not change my opinion and you might not change your opinion, but at least we have greater understanding of one another. And then let's be very careful about how we utilize Scripture in these conversations as well. Clearly there are things in Scripture that are non-negotiable, uh, that are not worthy of debate, Right? Like, should we be honest? Uh, should we pursue the truth? You know, is Jesus the Son of God? These are non-negotiable core elements of our faith. But there are disputable matters that Scripture doesn't talk directly to, and so we do the best that we can to use Scripture to guide how we think about these things. But we very easily can commit spiritual abuse when we weaponize Scripture to support my position over your position. So let's have a humility, even as we approach the Scriptures, and try to apply them to current events. We can disagree with one another without being disagreeable. So let's exercise humility. And then let's have grace for one another as we regather. Everyone's going to regather at their own pace. Some of you will be eager to join us back in person. Some of you, for health reasons or otherwise, might be a little bit more slow to get involved in the in-person services. Let's have grace for one another in that. Some of you are going to be all about hugs and, and handshakes, and some of you are going to be like, don't touch me. Let's have grace for where each other is at. And then lastly, get involved. As we regather as a church, there are ministries that we are restarting, and they're going to need volunteers. And it's a bit daunting to look at how we're going to run some of these things when we don't have a volunteer base yet. So we think of our kids' camps in the summer, and we think about... Uh, if, we want to, if, if we can run a summer Sunday school, and we think about Sunday school in the fall, and we think about audio-visual texts uh, for uh, running sound and, and video on Sunday mornings, we need people to be involved, so get involved as you can. Because our goal, as Daniel's goal is in his prayer, is that God's reputation would be made great. Made great. That we would be completely faithful to God, that we would learn the lessons that we need to learn, and that we, could, that we could have learned and that we have learned over the past 16 months, let's apply those lessons in how it is that we regather so that God will receive glory and that the church will be effective in our mission. So with all of that said, and with that concern for unity at the forefront, we turn to the Lord's Supper. Communion is a meal that we celebrate once a month, and I'm very excited to celebrate this with you in person again. It reminds us of Jesus sitting with his disciples the night before he was crucified. 
And he used bread as a symbol of his body, which was going to be broken, and, and wine as a symbol of his blood that was going to be shed. And one of the themes that we're reminded of in communion is our unity with one another. Uh, Paul reminds us of this unity in Ephesians 4. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Catch all the ones there? We, we are united in Christ and in the faith. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 when he starts to, to talk about the Lord's Supper. He says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And he says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the same loaf. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup and be thankful for the unity which Christ won for us on the cross. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for what you have done for us. You have made a way for us to be united in Christ. because of your shed blood and your broken body on the cross. Father, as we regather as a church, may we learn from the lessons of the past and may we apply ourselves to humbly pursuing the unity that you have given to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.